Taco. Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation, Art, Culture, and Ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Thank you so much for our time together today. I mean, I got to thank the team here at The Conversation, Catherine Cruz, Bill Dorman, the whole team for another great week. And it's a bit of kind of a chilly week, right? I just put on another jacket. How many of you are wearing socks at home right now? Well, have you seen the handsome snow-frosting Mauna Kea? How's that? How about we start over on Hawaii Island? Throughout this pandemic, Hawaii Island's been an example of effective housing and food aid distribution. Just this week, Kristen Frost Albrecht, executive director of the Hawaii Food Basket, was helping with an Ohana food drop in Waimea. When we talked last year, we talked in May, Kristen said her food bank normally fed about 14,000 people a month, but that the need had doubled to 32,000 last April. And then as we progressed, it turned into 80 to 85,000 that we were serving and about 85% were unemployed due to the pandemic. That was sort of how we ended our year. Those are really big numbers. That's six times more than we were serving at this time last year. That's staggering, Kristen. It has been. (laughs) (laughs) How have you managed to fill the gaps? When I talked to you last, your big island, farmers and ranchers, were your biggest source of food. Yes, we have been so fortunate because I think We've had extraordinary support through partnerships and collaborations from our farmers and ranchers and fishermen, as well as our donors. And I have to say, truly extraordinary, our staff. All of those things have worked together to actually meet the need that we have been meeting. Really great to hear that. Where, where are you seeing the pockets of greatest need? Because as this has unfolded, we've seen the greatest need actually in agricultural areas, Kristen. Yes, we definitely see agricultural producers in our lines. I'm, I'm so sorry to say. The market, you know, at restaurants, the resorts are a huge market for our producers. And so that really has changed things. I like to think that that we've helped to provide also an emergency food market. Yesterday, we were in Waimea, and we were able to give out to our Ohana Drop participants uh, frozen ulu as well as frozen kabocha squash that had been steamed and frozen, I should say. So it's really easy to prepare. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and delicious and nutritious and all those great things and all harvested and processed on Hawaii Island. So we do include at every Ohana drop also fresh produce that's sourced from our farmers. Well, you've been one of the great conduits to, you know, coaching farmers along on your island. What are you seeing among farmers? Are they making a living? Are they are they able to kind of patch a living together from the demand on an island? I will say a couple things. One, we're seeing a lot of interest in farming, and maybe it's people who've had backyard gardens and They have a couple acres and they decide to move up from their backyard garden to actually planting a crop. We're seeing a lot of activity in that. And many times, say somebody has 100 limes and we need 600, we can buy from six different farmers 100 lots. So we like to think that we can help grow those farmers into a bigger business or at least provide them with that guidance early on. Invaluable. It's really important because it all makes such a difference, whether you're growing at home for your family and your extended family and friends. I think all of this really makes a huge difference. I keep (laughs) hearing about people who have started gardens because they're not working and they start initially in a garden pot and they're growing and they might be growing lettuce and green onions. And suddenly it's like, it's such a thrill. Then they expand that. And so I think the other thing that we're seeing is people are being very creative. If they had counted on a particular market, they've expanded their partnerships. They've gone out looking for customers, and I think they're finding them in many cases. And so I think there's been some lessons learned of don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? We always hear that. Diversified farming sounds really good, but somehow we've really got to make this so tailored to communities. And we've got to make people willing to pay a little bit more. Yes. And I think the appreciation for what it is, what it really means to eat local. 
I mean, if you eat an orange that's grown down in Pune, you know, Pune oranges are just delicious. And you eat an orange that's been shipped from the mainland, you will instantly know the difference. I mean, there's just no, the quality is superior. And so I think that people, when they try that and they start to realize that, you can look at that cost difference and go, oh, but I'm going to get so much more for my money. You're going to get a lot of more pleasure for sure. I'm so glad you chose that example of Kona oranges because there's a perfect example of a fruit that does not look like your perfect icon of an orange. Often they look a little scarred and not quite the coloration you expect. There's a big navel on it, but let me tell you, those are the best. They are the best. Yesterday in Waimea, we had four different types of avocados. Oh my God. We had this great conversation as we're passing out food at the line about, so what's your favorite avocado? And everybody's kind of into it. You know, it's the Sharwil or the Kahuluhu or, you know, the Yamamato. And everybody is sort of what I think of it's food literacy. We're all joined in this. And the more we can discuss and get excited about it. If people in the world really knew the range and variety of avocados we grow in Hawaii, they'd be flying here just to eat those. Yes. And honestly, we can't ship many of them. You know, there's only a couple types that are approved for shipping. So we do have uh, an incredible local wealth of food that Man. you can't eat anywhere else. <laughs> and it has been so much fun to see that awareness build. And with that, the awareness of understanding our local food system, what we're growing actually means food security. I think the biggest challenge is of changing over to, I don't know, a taro burger and ulu fries. Although we have wonderful <laughs> locally grown beef, so I should actually mention that too. But you know, there's a, there's a shift that happens. It's not going to be opening so many packages. We can do it here. Uh, ulu flour. I was just talking to Donna Shapiro not too long ago at the Ulu Co-op, and they're making ulu flour, which makes wonderful products. Food products that we never had before. <laughs> yes. I think that that's the other shift we're seeing with farmers is they are thinking out of the box. We need more processing. We need a lot more processing facilities available. But it is exciting to see some of the very cool things. I was just hearing about freeze-dried just about anything. We just heard about a large dehydrator that somebody purchased just for bananas. Apple bananas, dehydrated apple Great. bananas. They're an excellent, excellent snack. What do you think Hawaii Island's food system could use? Definitely processing facilities. There's one type of processing that I think would make such a big difference here and that's high pressure pasteurization. Um, we were just talking about avocados and high pressure pasteurization is widely used. Say we have one today, it goes through the high pressure pasteurization process. It will be in a year, most likely still in the same state as when you opened it just a minute ago. It is part of the cold chain, so you do need to keep it cold, but there are other processes that can extend the life of products, make them shelf stable. And I think those are things that we really need to see on this island to make us truly food secure. Well, the forces you've marshaled to uh, sustain your operations this far point to connections that are gonna be a really strong foundation for going forward. Yes, even though we've been through a lot of crisis, Kilauea lava flow, Hurricane Lane, U.S. partial government shutdown, all of those things are things that really affect food banks. It's been so heartwarming, honestly. It's very touching to watch everyone come together and work together as one to serve those who are in need. And as soon as people get back on their feet, there are first ones knocking at our door to help out somebody else. And, but I have some happy news. We saw a big decrease in Kona at our last big ohana drop that was two weeks ago and what we're hearing is people have been hired back either at the resorts or the restaurants many of them are part-time or temporary but it still made a sizable impact we saw a decrease between 
I believe it was November and January of about a thousand people. That's huge. Um, we're still serving about 2,800 there in Kona, but that still was a, a sizable decrease. The other place was last week, and that was at Volcano. And because of lava, we are noticing that there are a lot of people visiting to see the lava lake. And so we saw another substantial decrease in need at our Ohana drop at that site as well. Those are the only two sites that we've seen, but it is an indication that things are starting to round the curve. And I think that's a really positive place to be. Thanks. That's Kristen Frost-Albert, Executive Director of Hawaii Food Basket, Hawaii Island's Food Bank. On the topic of food, Chef Martha Romero of Mercado de la Raza takes us to Chinatown later in this program. She'll show us where to get the best deals on tomatoes, papayas, bananas, and more. Shangri-La. Quick backstory. Tobacco heiress Doris Duke fell in love with Islamic culture and art on her round-the-world honeymoon. Stopping in Honolulu on her way home, Duke decided to house her collection here in in an Islamic-style setting on Diamond Head. The view from the lawn across the terraced pools is splendid. Coconut palms fringe the property, perched with a clear view of the open ocean. It's Cromwell's surf spot her husband's name. Inside, the rooms feel distinct from others we're normally in. White walls have window niches with colored glass designs. The entryway splits into two staircases that descend to an interior courtyard. And that's where I met Leslie Mickelson, curator of collections and exhibitions at Shangri-La. They have an exhibit called 8 by 8 on view now. It's all Hawaii artists, and that's something different. So we're in the middle of um, transforming the experience away from a docent-led tour to hopefully a self-guided experience. That's this is a big change. It is a very big change. Yes, we're excited about that. Oh. So we're preparing this as an introductory gallery so that people have a chance to orient themselves. <laughs> <laughs> That's needed here. Absolutely. <laughs> it so helps to bring other senses to this exploration. I mean, everything you know about history and music is great. Plus. I was here for a tabla performance once and you served Persian sweets. It all helps. Absolutely. Art in a vacuum is, I mean, you know. What is it? What is it? And this is why my own personal bias, and you know, and I'm a trained art historian, but um, when something's super high concept, for example, I find that really challenging, right? Because um, I think that it can also be very elitist, you know, and it's very exclusionary. And so I think the most important thing for us is to really make bridges outward because already we're dealing with a slight disadvantage. People have a lot of misconceptions about Islamic art. People think that it's you know, purely religious, they think that there are no figures, they think that you know, it's only from the Middle East, but of course, the most populous Muslim nation is Indonesia, right? <laughs> so, Leslie, you've been here four years. Mm-hmm. Most of my career has been spent in the Middle East and Central Asia. This is actually my first full-time job in America, <laughs> in as much as Hawaii is. <laughs> Most recently, I was working for UNESCO Afghanistan, Before that, I was at the Museum of Islamic Art in Doha, Qatar. Before that, I worked with an NGO called Turquoise Mountain in Kabul. And I have a lot of archaeology projects, uh, mostly in Turkmenistan. It's, you know, it was a deliberate choice. I really wanted to do this. I felt it was really imperative, you know, as the only freestanding museum of Islamic art in the United States, which always blows people's minds about Shangri-La, I think we have a real moral imperative to really advocate for the cultures and peoples whose artworks are represented in our collection. Mm-hmm. How do we get that? How do we expand the experience mm-hmm. of that? I think it's, honestly, I think it's through narratives. I think that's the most powerful way that people learn is through stories. And I think, obviously, people are different kind of learners. What we want to do is provide a menu of experiences so that people can have, first of all, multiple interpretations, because there are multiple voices here, and then also multiple choices in how they learn. 
You really did choose your artists so well here. I'm really dying to see Tom Walker. Yes, please, let's go right through here. And you know, I will tell you also that this is Brandon Ng's uh. work. Brandon Ng has a three part. It starts with archival photographs of the construction of Shangri-La. It then progresses to these cyanotypes that he created from native Hawaiian plants. And on the other side are actually examples of those very rare native Hawaiian endemic plants. <laughs> when I was choosing the, the visual artists, I wanted to celebrate so many of the artists that I knew here that I felt didn't have enough chances to exhibit. I don't want to be the Howley chick from the mainland who comes in and criticizes, but I'm really sick of going to art openings in bars here. I think that the, the arts community really needs more spaces to flourish and grow. And I think that that's where Shangri-La can be a partner, right? We have wall space, we have some funds, and once a year at least, I hope that we can open up to artists from our community and celebrate their work. And that's what 8x8 is all about, right? You have often wondered whether really these are the best pieces from the time of the era and so on. Well, I have to say, as an Islamic art historian, I'm, our collection is quirky, right? We have some amazing, I really hate this word, but quote-unquote masterpieces. And then we have some much more humble materials. And in a way, I'm much more excited about this collection than I am with other collections that I've worked with. And I think partly it's because I'm also an archaeologist, and so I'm very excited <laughs> by the domestic and the humble and the quotidian. Because let's be honest, the quotidian is actually much more relevant to understanding a culture than something that's made in court, right? Does that actually influence visual culture if five or six people get to see it, you uh. know? Isn't it actually much more of an effect on the populace to have things in much more humble materials that circulate much more widely? It's not one is a correct answer, one is not. These are questions I think that we need to ask because so much of art history is really informed by the history of elitism and the elite and the production for the elite and it gives us a very skewed notion of history. Ever think of it that way? Leslie Mickelson is curator of collections and exhibitions at Shangri-La. While the museum's closed, you can find the entire 8 by 8 exhibition, including eight performances. They look great. Kudos to the artists. It's all online. The 8 by 8 exhibition was organized well before COVID hit, and it's part of a longer-term redirection at that famous showcase. That's according to its executive director, Conrad Ng. Shangri-La has always been a bit remote, exclusive, gorgeous, and well-funded, something of an anomaly. Full disclosure, Conrading is on the board of HPR. I've just admired your work in this community for over so many years, and you're a scrappy film curator. <laughs> you have the Art Academy and so on, and you've expanded your skills. You, you've been to Washington and back. Yeah. You're President Obama's brother-in-law. I mean, what was it like in Washington? Tell me what you did that you're now applying here back in Hawaii. Oh, boy. When I was the director of the Smithsonian Institution's Asian Pacific American Center, um, it was an opportunity to really leverage the kinds of experiences that I felt were central to understanding the American story, which is to say the experiences of Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, and Native Hawaiians. And when you're at the Smithsonian, it is a national platform. And I believed it was important to reorient the understanding of America from a Pacific uh, perspective. Was and, that a shock to people? Yeah, yeah, it's a shock. Um, I wonder and, if some of the effects of your work in Washington might have been, the, we did get some attention from the Smithsonian recently, the ICAI exhibit and some other outreach efforts. And since you've been back here, you've been working with Shangri-La to open it up a little bit more. Part of our pivot here at Shangri-La has been to be relevant to the concerns of the people who live in Hawaii. Art has a place, even at inauguration, that we can listen to a poem and be inspired and hopeful about the next day. That and inauguration that's... ceremony was a giant testament to the power of art. I mean, down to the inaugural painting. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Democracy thrives when art is alive. I've seen Shangri-La begin to reach out, get outside of even this place to have artist residencies. People are making the case that artists and art itself is changing. Presenting institutions are also changing. Museums have a role to play in preserving the civic fabric of democracy and allowing citizens to imagine what a good and better world could be. 
uh, what a good and better and more just life could be, and how democracy relies on the participation of people to imagine these worlds and put those in forms of creativity. Museums have a responsibility as trusted sources of knowledge to invite artists to speak, to put on exhibitions that detail our history and heritage, and invite the public in a way that says, you're welcome here, and please learn and ask us more questions. How do we get people to make the time for this? Institutions mm -hmm. can knock themselves out to make their resources available, but there's got to be a desire to partake of those resources. How do we ignite that? Well, in my mind, it's about normalizing artistic life as part of the everyday. So our goal is to reopen in a fashion where people have multiple ways to engage with the museum. They can do it through, uh, say, for example, a, a guided you know, tour experience, but also a, a self-guided tour option where there's an audio guide or other pops of information to help guide a person through Shangri-La. And, you know, it, it, there's no harm in someone just wanting to come and enjoy the view. So they would journey through Shangri-La, but perhaps just stare at the ocean afterward. Conrad Ng, Executive Director of Shangri-La, Museum of Islamic Art, Culture, and Design. Later in the program, we'll hear how an Iranian hip-hop artist, Il Nomadic, found his own culture here in Hawaii. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, following health guidelines, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants and bars in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. RubyTuesdayHawaii.com. This week on Science Friday, exploding a myth about ancient lost civilizations. Some cities were built to be left behind. People who lived there didn't have that same attachment, abandonment, was built into the city from the beginning. And what's living inside your sourdough starter? These are the heirloom pets that outlive you. All on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the National Kidney Foundation of Hawaii, which helped develop the city and county's COVID-19 testing lab at Honolulu Airport. Walk-ins welcome daily. Learn more at kidneyhi.org. Maybe you could tell from listening to Shangri-La's curator earlier what an important role curators have. Great curators pull artists and ideas together to shape our understanding. Plugged-in curators are essential in a cultural ecosystem. Speaking of which, next week, we've got the Hawaii Arts Summit happening Wednesday through Saturday, February 10th through 13th. The keynote will be presented by international artist-activist Ai Weiwei. He designed China's Olympic Bird Nest Stadium and later said he regretted it. He spent time in Chinese prisons. He's traveled to some of the world's largest refugee camps, making a film about migration which he relates to populism and right-wing movements. Ai Weiwei is highly influential across art, politics, and culture. He'll share thoughts along with dozens of other artists. So I asked two key local curators what they'd recommend in the upcoming Art Summit. We met at the Hawaii State Art Museum. <laughs> 
Josh Tengan. He's an independent curator and writer working with Puuhonua Society and the Arts and Letters Building in Chinatown. Drew Kahuaina Broderick is an artist and curator, now gallery director at Kapi'olani Community College Koa Gallery. He's teaching an intro to art class. So I asked him, what in the Art Summit would you recommend to your students, for example? Uh, I mean, you know, a big name like Ai Weiwei might be interesting to someone who's just coming into the arts. Or um, a name that is less visible, like Pilia Mo'o, might be um, interesting to someone who's delving a little bit deeper into the arts. Um, what would you say about Pilia Mo'o? Maybe for this conversation it makes sense to just talk about what their program will be for the summit. Kapolani Landgraf and Mark Hamasaki, student and teacher, collaborated together as peers and called themselves Pilia Mo'o to document the construction of the H3 freeway and the destruction of cultural sites and Wahipana in North Lava and Haiku Valley. They'll give a talk about the multi-part project, devastation upon devastation, as a part of the summit program. They look at a Kue archive, a counter-archive that they established, a series of exhibitions that they had across the 90s, Kanikau, a chant of mourning that was written as a part of that process, and then a publication that was produced in 2015. They kind of look at this multi-decades project as a part of their summit program. Staggering project. Yeah, oh, it is. Oh, man. Josh, you're gonna, are you participating? I, yeah, I mean, I have a small participation. I, along with the 2019 curator, the Honolulu Biennial, Nina Tonga, we will be offering some commentary, responding to kind of curatorial thinking behind the 2022 Honolulu Triennial. Is that what it's called? I couldn't oh, I'm remember. Honolulu Triennial. Hawaii Contemporary. Hawaii Triennial. Let's discuss the name yeah. changes. No. Yeah. <laughs> so just for our own reference, yeah. it's like aspirational, I think. The organization, mm-hmm. you know, moved from Honolulu as defining their limits of engagement to Hawaii. So they went from Honolulu um, Biennial Foundation to Hawaii Contemporary. And the event went from the Honolulu Biennial to the Hawaii Triennial. So hopefully, you know, in the iterations to come, the reach will, will get a little bit um, wider and, you know, Honolulu will be decentered within the archipelago mm-hmm. and, and people will be able to focus on practices on other islands. That's, I think, Yeah, wow. <laughs> so we can gather that that name change was to kind of broaden the representation or the inclusion of the entire archipelago. Yeah, but that's something about the Honolulu Biennial, I think, to note is that I think that's a process of them taking on criticism, maybe, mm-hmm. and, and shifting. Yeah, a new institution in its early days, being receptive to community feedback. So what what could it be, this Hawaii Triennial? Uh, I mean... What, I don't know. Like, I, I, I mean, I see it as maybe a third institution that's like cool. a little low easy kind of <laughs> coming up. Um, Just trying to see, like, where are we now making art? You know, I know people are asking themselves why selling art, people are doing okay online, you know, if, if they ever sold anywhere, I don't know. What other aspects of the current art scene do you see right now? For me, personally, um, art, like anything, is a pathway to one another. Right? It's about uh, building relationship, for me. Whether or not that's a relationship with a material, like cement, or aluminum, or it's a relationship with another being, human or otherwise, art to me is a pathway. It's, it's how uh, one can connect with community, with infrastructures, with the environment. So whether or not someone's making or selling their art, from my perspective, doesn't matter as much as, as whether or not that process is allowing them to establish relationships with their surroundings. I don't know, Josh, how you feel about it. That was beautiful. What was the question? <laughs> it was like, that's why we go to Arts and Letters. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> to yeah. connect. Yeah. 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 Or why the openings are the most attended events of an exhibition's mm. life cycle. Yeah. We don't go for the art. I mean, yeah, okay, yeah. maybe some of us go for the art. We go yeah. to be in relation to one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's what it's all about. And now in COVID times, <laughs> we're still trying to do it. Yep. Trying to um, connect in the ways that we can, whether or not that's through a phone call or uh, online. Yeah. Still trying to connect. 
Drew Broderick, and Josh Tengan, curators, connectors, discussing the Hawaii Art Summit, set for February 10th to 13th. Lots of opportunities to interact there. We'll post links with this story. Blast the cop that house on the hill. Natural remedies, I don't like to pop pills. Throw a couple ulus on the grill. Really busy, but I make time to chill. Some people live their lives for the thrill. Some people live their lives to pay bills. My days are spent shopping in my skills. And Pimp C taught me how to keep it trail. I chose to be the boss, so I had to pay the cost. Now I fly to Hilo Town just to cop a wine force. Setting up 20 by 40s for the baby party. When the family gets together, that is so rewarding. Dancing in the night, dancing in the street. Go and make your plate, everybody gets to eat. Up Paina with our family and friends. I can't wait for the chance where we can do this again. Slippers on my feet and sand on my toes. Chilling by the beach, rearing a gold. Blowing up fast, I got it all. Everything I need to keep me home. The simple things always last. Slipping through the water with the sun on my back. Anytime in the age is the time. Anytime. Every time. Right now, I'm loving life. I'm like the from his release, The Menehune Giant on Zembu Records. Hawaii's rich spoken word heritage is thriving, and I went looking for one of its practitioners recently. Educator Navid Najafi goes by Il Nomadic. That's his MC name. He was just hired as Learning Programs Coordinator at Shangri-La, and I know he's been busy releasing new material, too. The climate has changed now. You know, we're in a situation now where truth has been coming to the surface rapidly, and so a lot of people that didn't want to hear certain things are now uh, looking towards those things because a lot of what they were, had their faith in is, is kind of crumbled in a sense, you know, so... Talk to us about your most recent release. Yeah, so it really I just jumps into that topic. Right. So I just put out a song called Breathe featuring Omni MC, who's a MC from Philadelphia, but she's been in Hawaii over a year now, produced by Noho Kai, who is one of my oldest friends. He's in the Bay Area now. So he produced the beat and we released a song called Breathe and it's just about the moment basically. Embracing the moment, realizing who you are, recognizing your responsibility, um, and just breathing and, and grounding yourself and being able to overcome challenges. The system we live is an endless debate over youth and decay. The cycle I played in a mystic crusader through wisdom and stages. I move with the day. No doubt, like the moon with the time, my movements arrive. Gain tune with the eye. We be the proof and the higher. Lemurian mood renewed by the fire. I keep my ancestors close and they secrets closer. Now I I've done a lot of features lately. There's a, a band called Brighter Side of Soul. They're a Hawaii based band. They put out a song called Enough is Enough. There's a few of us MCs featured on it, um, and the last two minutes or so are just instrumental because we are inviting other lyricists, poets, to put their pieces okay. on top of it. Yeah, so that Fabulous. was a really cool project. Uh, Brighter Side of Soul, or BSOS, is called Enough is Enough. Wow, what a group that must be. Yeah, it's actually uh, Shri from the Quadraphonics. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so it's his band. Wow. Album coming out from my super grouper's partner named Driftin Limerick. He used to go by Illicit. Yeah. Oh, you're kidding. So yeah, he changed his moniker, Drift in Limerick. His solo album is coming out, produced by Otoro on uh -huh. Zembu Records. Keith Cross is um, sure. also featured on that. And Keith Cross, a.k.a. Dr. Bars, is one of the artists in the 8x8 exhibition. So this is our crew, Punahele, of course, has been making new music. Um, he put out an album uh, a few months ago called From Beneath Mauna Kea, all recorded on the Mauna in vans, trucks, cars, while he was up there uh, last summer. So that album came out, I was also featured on that. And I um, actually also have a performance coming up for the Hawaii Contemporary Art Summit. 
myself, Punahele, Drifted Limerick, and Dr. Bars with Otoro. That's wow. going to wrap up the Art Summit, actually. It's the, the ending of the Art Summit, I think February 13th. Yeah, so yeah, I'm definitely um, grateful just to have opportunities to speak and, and have all these amazing collaborators and, and people that want to work with me and want to hear what I have to say. And definitely grateful. And then being in this position at the Shangri-La is an amazing opportunity. I mean, I get to be around art and think about art and public engagement and how to connect people to things that I'm very familiar with and, and that, you know, I've been doing for years, you know, every time I go into a classroom, the first thing I do is perform, first of all, because you have to establish your credibility with the kids. And then I tell them where I'm from. I tell them I'm from Iran and tell them a little bit about my story and the history of where I'm from. And, and it's all in hopes of inspiring people and especially kids to tell their own stories. You know, I always leave them with this idea that if you don't tell your own stories, other people are going to tell your stories and they're not going to get it right. You know, so you have a responsibility to speak up for yourself, for your community, um, you know, for, for your family. And a lot of times we might be disconnected or displaced from, from those things, from our families, knowing our heritage, where we come from, our cultures, but they're all within you still, you know, and creativity is, I think, the best tool to tap into that and be able to bring that out, so. What did you find about your Iranness? in Hawaii. The most important reason why I'm here is because of, of Hawaiians. You know, it's because of Hawaii and Hawaiians and Hawaiians allowing me to come into their spaces and learn uh, their ways and learn about their culture and the, the values of Aloha Aina. I mean, uh, those are all things that my grandfather taught me in Iran. You know, respecting nature, like seeing nature as your elder, seeing nature as your chief. I find a lot of parallels and I think, and I say this too, like, Getting closer to Hawaiians and learning more about Hawaiians made me want to be more Persian, made me want to be closer to Iran. And that's what I want to do with my uh, uh, connection to Iran, is I want to inspire others to connect to themselves and to their own cultures and tell their own stories. You know, like inclusion is really important and, you know, essentially we're all human beings and we're all having this human experience, but diversity is also very important. You know, we shouldn't lose our cultural heritage. We shouldn't lose our cultural identity. We should share those things freely and learn from each other. Some people don't have that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you, don't, you might not have that direct, clear connection, but you do have that. Everybody has that. We all come from somewhere. Can we just choose? Uh, I mean, <laughs> in a lot of ways we can. So we do this exercise um, in our workshops with kids where we're retracing our, our we call it like your tail. So your tail is your story, uh -huh. but it's also like, if you think about it, like you have a tail, like this uh, long line behind you <laughs> that led to you being here in this moment, you mm -hmm. know, and these are lives and generations of people that make up your ancestry. So you go as far back as you know, so your parents, your grandparents, and then at a certain point, n no one knows, right? Uh -huh. So then you use your creative imagination and you start creating and you could talk about nature, you could talk about elements. A lot of kids don't have parents or might not even know their immediate mm -hmm. family you know so that's where your creativity and i believe i mean this is a um, personal belief but i believe that we have genetic memory and i believe that your intuition and that voice that inner voice is guiding you and leading you back and forward and it, even if you don't know you could start your line today you know you are the ancestors of the future right so how do you want to establish who you are and who your your uh, descendants are going to be you know even if you don't know who your ancestors are you are an ancestor so embrace that and create this line that's this legacy that you want to extend out into the future i think creativity and art and imagination are powerful tools to be able to connect to that mc educator navid najafi he's one of the people you'll meet when you visit shangri-la Find his music on any of your favorite music platforms under Ill Nomadic.
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and The Hub Coworking Hawaii. Join HPR Saturday, February 6th for a virtual concert with singer-songwriter Keale. His soulful lyrics and unique style honor the legacy of his family, including his first cousin, the late Israel Kamaka Viva Ole. Enjoy an evening of music that brings forward the voice and presence of the ancestors. Reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, Wealth Management. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu If you live on Oahu and do not shop in Chinatown, there's a chance you're paying too much and not getting the freshest fruits and vegetables. Martha Sanchez Romero is the chef owner of Mercado de la Raza, South American grocery store on Baratania Street. She shops in Chinatown every week to make salsas, tamales, and other items for the store. So we met at Hotel and Kekalike Street Mall right there in Chinatown around 10 in the morning. And there were people with bags and shopping carts, I'm telling you, bustling all around us. Oh, oh my cilantro. Let's look what you have. Oh my god, it looks so cilantro. fresh. The cilantro. I always buy it from there. Which one? Okay, so this is right near the entrance yeah. to the closed market on Kitalika. And I'll tell you where I buy the tomato. Oh, okay. Uh, this place where they, they are growers. <laughs> the tomato I buy from them is better price than any place else. How can you tell Oh, when, when I come in the morning, I take a, a walk. A lot of the vendors have the same thing. They have, tend to have the same price. You go a little bit further, they vary between 75 to 50 cents. Mm. So you always look for that. Mm. Like, um, only place that sells like uh, Asian fairs. Asian, Asian fairs. fairs. Yeah. They're the only way you're gonna find them here. Nice. Oh, beautiful. I know, this is Wing Chong at 133 North Hotel. I'm getting some of these pears too. How's your gao? Four eighty one. The gao did you come in? I know. Big last life. Thank, Thank you. you. Enjoy lunch. Jimmy's Produce and Filipino Store, one thirty one North Hotel. Here she goes. Hey. Oh. Is this your tomato connection? Oh, it has the best papayas. Yeah, I buy my tomato. I buy it. Money is only tomato. <laughs> this is the mother load. That's what I buy the the local growers, so I buy the tomato from them. Price on this island? Yeah. And then they have uh, the best price for apple banana. Oh, what? How much is that? Right here. One oh nine. Yeah. See, like right on. You can pick them. Okay, so. And then the papayas are the sweetest papayas here. And they're 89 cents a yeah. pound, people. They're really, really sweet. You have any more papayas, sister? You, you cannot get the kafuku ones, you buy this one. 
where I carry my papaya, I have a little box. Dollar. I have a little box. Because otherwise, against each other, they bruise. Oh, they do, don't yeah, they? Yeah, so they always get, always make sure mm -hmm. I get up. Wait, now, you just buy your bananas more ripe and just eat them right then. No, every day. So these, they don't ripen as fast. The ones that tend to ripe faster is the regular. Um, Williams. Yeah. You're right about that. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the reason I buy these because I know they will last me. Like we have a banana every day, you share with my son. Mm -mm -mm. And Thank those you. Good yeah, size welcome. too. Yeah. You know, how do you choose avocados? Where do you get oh, your I'll avocados? You. Well, I get avocados directly from Mexico. What? So I have the best avocados. Oh. Oh my God. And also I'm very uh, strict about, I don't let people handle them because they bruise them. Because people, they, they feel the consistency. They think they're wrong. They just toss them. But this is Charwell. Is that the kind of avocado Charwell. you like? This is Mexican avocado grown in Kona. They look great. Yes. They're really good. They have this tiny seed and they're really, really fleshy. Charwells, Mexican avocado grown in Kona. Uh -huh. I see you going for the more smooth-skinned ones no, too. Even no, even color. And even just, color. You're just looking for color. Yes, even color. Okay, okay. Even color. See? Even color. So all these avocados, they're gonna be ripe in a couple of days. They do look good. Look, I just love look. to come to Chinatown. Oh, I want to see the local they because they have a belly button. The ones that are local, they don't have and they're really sour. They have to have a belly button because they're seedless. See? So they're really sweet and juicy. I know, they look terrible, right? I know, a lot of people overlook it because they think, oh, the ugly oranges. No, those are the best. Oh, just, oh look, local orange, 99 cents yeah. a pound over here, too. You cannot, how can you go wrong? And they're really, really juicy and really, really good. Mm. Chicos. Oh, what? Uh huh. Mm, I'm seeing these. these are people. overripe. So oh, this are those is good. better? No, 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 no. They're green. The same. Oh, what? This so is good. Feel oh. it. Just feel it. Oh. So it's it's a brown, very globular round fruit with a semi-kiwi-ish exterior. Like this, like kiwi, but it's not. No. It, this. It, they're different. These two. So this yeah. is just the, the green, green version, and this, this is, is the right kind of a. Uh, you want to try one? Yeah. What? I'm gonna give you one for one. Okay. Gee, yeah, um, so it's this brown fruit with a really gnarly. Well, not that they gnarly. Grow. We call it chico zapote in Mexico. They call it chico here. Filipinos grow it. Really? Mexico used to have um, commerce between Guerrero, Acapulco Guerrero, and the Philippines. So a lot of the fruits were in exchange. What is this? Bitternut. Beetle nut. This makes the best quesadilla. She's saying that these oyster mushrooms that are here for ten ninety nine a pound make the best quesadillas. How do you make that um, quesadilla? You sauté the, um, the mushroom with a little bit of garlic, onion, epazote. What's that? And uh, epazote is an herb. Supposedly people mistakenly say, oh, you put epazote in your beans, you won't have gas, but it's not true. Epazote is used in the black beans and also a lot of dishes, Mexican dishes, because it's a good flavor. Because black beans tend to be bland. So you put that herb, makes them good. Epazote. And so you put a little of that with the mushrooms when you're sauteing them? Yeah, a little bit of garlic and onion. Just regular corn tortilla. So in the raw side, you put the mushrooms, then you fold it over, and then you cook it and then flip it twice. <laughs> That's definitely worth a try. Martha Romero is the chef and owner of Mercado de la Raza, South American grocer, on Baratania Street. She runs it with her son, Renaldo. Chinatown stores open pretty much from 8 to 3 every day. On Sundays, they shut down a little bit, well, like early afternoon. You can get lucky with street parking or go to the lot on Baratania Street just past Nuuano. It's easy. That Chico, by the way, tasted like straight brown sugar. And oyster mushroom quesadilla, how's that sound? For tonight, Ma'o Farm sent me a recipe for an arugula gimlet. <laughs> that and Latin beat tonight should make for a good time.
putting dinner together. Louis Bonilla and the Latin Jazz All-Stars. Ray Cruz says expect new music the first hour of Latin beat for this Aloha Friday. Also, Lillian wants that arugula gimlet recipe. We'll post it with this story. <laughs> Thank you so much for this time together today. You know, we love to hear from you. Call the talkback line. Leave the comments. The number is 808-792-8217. I do not notice a whole lot of feedback on the talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org area there. You can post comments at Facebook or tweet us. Go right on ahead. Visit the conversation page on the HPR website to listen back to shows, okay? This program is a Kako thing. Lillian Zhang, Jason Ubai, Russell Subiona, and Savannah Harriman Pote. Thank you. Courtesy, Gypsy 808, this music. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Be sure to join us Monday. Catherine Cruz picks up the conversation. Till then, let's take care of each other. Happy Aloha Friday.